Welcome to episode two of the Trash Talk podcast. I am your host, Michael Simonitis, and I am here today with a very special guest, Matt Cotton. Uh, Matt Cotton has, for over 25 years, became a respected resource for all aspects of the composting industry, everything from providing permitting assistance to new and expanded composting facilities, anaerobic digestion, chipping and grinding facilities, and providing hands-on odor mitigation at compost facilities. Um, that's curious. I'm, I'm, I'm a compost guy. Let's just that. go compost guy. Compost like, guy. Yeah. Matt Cotton. Yeah. Yeah. And I have, I, I hate when people read my bio, so sorry for interrupting, but I've just done a lot of things with a lot of compost for a long time. <laughs> I know. So. Um, I actually worked with you on a project and like must've been eight years ago at this point where we were, uh, sorting through some compost overs to find compostable plastics or non-compostable plastics and see kind of what yeah. great that was a great little study that's still available i i stand by it that was good work yeah it was really fascinating to see all of these uh, phony compostable products in there <laughs> uh, i should have brought that uh, study up to have on hand to reference but it was something like 97 percent of the plastic that we found in the compost overs was not compostable plastic it was just uh yeah, we can we can add a link because it's still up on the the biodegradable producers uh, BPI the biodegradable products institute's website, um, and it's still good work. And yeah, it was ninety seven percent of what we found in the overs was not even compostable to start with, which is continues to be one of the challenges. There's a lot of challenges with compostable plastics, legitimate compostable plastics, but the inability of people to to make a distinction between what is compostable and what isn't is still a significant barrier to, to that material really taking off. Um, so I hear you. I mean, we do special events and provide, you know, pretty strict requirements for vendors. We have uh, links to resources, even call it an upstream guarantee, but we find the event or charge them more if their vendors provide uh, non-compostable products. And I, I don't know if I've had more than two or three events out of the last, like, 50 to 100 that um, were 100 percent in compliance with our using compostables uh, policies because people just don't you know they can't tell the difference. Yeah, yeah, and they, it's you can, but yet as you know, as we both know, it's it's not easy. It's the manufacturers don't always make it easy. Uh, I don't know how committed some of the manufacturers are to identification and really making a mark. And then of course, if you come up with a green cup, then that doesn't necessarily work with a particular company's brand colors. So there's a lot of challenges along, like you said, identification and actual resin types. Um, do you see, I'm curious though, and not to turn it back to you, but I guess you're supposed to be asking the questions, but um, do you see in the work you do, people really getting more interested in reusables or they're still looking for a compostable, disposable, a single use item? Well, I'm glad you asked that. And I, I think a lot of people were considering going toward reusables. We had some pretty major events that were uh, uh, going that direction. And I even started a new company recently, Subbusters, as a separate entity to provide such a service for large special events. And, part, of these, uh, part of the Busters family of companies. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, I haven't even uh, told anyone about this yet. This might be a sneak preview, but uh, we're also starting a, a new brand under that. A company called Stress Busters, 
And uh, that's, that's kind of a weird pivot we've had to do because uh, with this COVID-19 outbreak, no one's uh, signing up for a reusables program or even throwing events at all. Right. Uh, even Starbucks isn't allowing you to bring a reusable cup if they're even open. So uh, right. that whole program and company has, has kind of had to shift gears a little bit. So we're making organic bulk refill hand sanitizer and herbal like anti-stress remedies for the time being. Well, I think we can use both of those things. So I, I for one, am welcome the time when we can go back to reusing our cups. <laughs> yeah, I me too. That. I even mm-hmm. went and uh, designed our own reusable cup that's uh, super efficient. But like before, the, before the current crisis, did you see that what you said there were some interests, but it was still not as widespread as you would have expected? Um, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people are going with the souvenir cup as a yeah. reusable option and then they're refilling the cups. But uh, a couple of farmers markets I've noticed have just gone and bought steel forks and then have various uh, volunteer groups or staff uh, within the market just collect the, the forks and work with a restaurant to wash them. Because yeah. uh, here in Sonoma County, for example, we don't have the uh, ability to compost compostable plastics, or at least our facilities don't accept those materials. So right. that was one option uh, for a, a fork that um, wasn't... You know, I guess there are those um, birchware uh, fiber-based forks, but I don't yeah. really don't see too many of those. And there's a little bit of a weird mouthfeel, right? It's like a tongue depressor. Yeah, and I, I think they have, I think, well, it's complicated, right? There's a lot of different situations, a lot of different requirements for that. I've, I've certainly seen the, the wood-based or fiber-based type single-use utensils, but I've, they have limitations, just like every option has a limitation. I, I was impressed or, I guess... Uh, encouraged to see the Super Bowl using the, like you said, the souvenir aluminum cups, but those are relatively expensive, but at least I would guess if those, many of those were taken home, like you said, as souvenirs, but I got to believe the majority of those, if not kept were, were recycled just because of the value of it. But it's a, boy, that's a long, long, slow hill to climb. I uh, checked yeah, out. I mean, you can talk all day about reusables, but uh, the topic of today's show is compostable. So why don't we fair point? <laughs> put, put the reusables in the bike rack for now, just like everybody's doing, and sure, uh, I... talk about what what's uh, going on with the compost and, and why we can't. You know, yeah, and forgive me for that. Of course, you know I've been interested in the compostable plastics, and that gets you into the discussion of serviceware and stuff, which is really a very small part of composting and, and composting, of course, front and center here in California with AB, uh, excuse me, SB 1383 and lots and lots of programs out there. And that's, that's going great guns. I mean, all across the state, um, certainly some jurisdictions, city of Berkeley where I live has been collecting food scraps and, and yard waste together for, for decades, other places, it's a brand new thing, but, um, I'm, I'm sure, you know, there are programs all over the state. New programs, expanded programs, programs accepting new materials to get all this uh, great organic matter into compost and then onto the fields where it can grow food again. So I'm I'm really encouraged by what I'm seeing lately here in California. Yeah, likewise. I mean, uh, food waste programs in, in particular, I'm seeing really catch on here with a lot of the restaurants that that weren't composting before and are now. We just got compost bins for uh, the public installed in our you know local park and plaza. So that was that was exciting to see uh, compost being available publicly. That, that was relatively new. You don't see that in every town. Yeah, it's it, you do start to see more and more compost normative behavior as you travel around the state, and it's more visible in some places than others. But you 
certainly we're going to see a lot more of that, whether it's a, a bin or a service or, or a compostable thing. But uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, very encouraging. I love that compost normative behavior. And um, that's what, you know, I've been trying to go with uh, doing the events. It's like, hey, if we're out here at events and have composting as a matter of course, whenever someone's at an event, they might adopt that compost normative behavior and bring it home and get acculturated to it. Because uh, I think that's it. All of this we learn, all of this is learned behavior. You know, throwing something away is learned behavior. Someone taught you to do that at a very, very young age. Someone taught you not to waste food at a very, very young age. And we just had these ways and we can change. You know, unfortunately, some things take a long time. You know, seatbelts, I'm certainly old enough to remember riding in cars that weren't built with seatbelts, and then that changed. And, you know, back in the day, you, when, I, <laughs> when I was starting out as a young consultant, you could still smoke in an office. And it's hard to believe or hard to imagine that today. But, you know, it, things do change. And I think that's, that's it. If it's normative behavior, if you've got the bins, you've got the collection, the, the bins don't care what's in them. The trucks don't care what's in them. And if we have the facilities and the infrastructure to do it, then it's not really that much of a challenge. We just have to learn how to do it and, and get more people doing it. You know, so. I, I tend to agree, but sometimes the, the larger bins, I've, I've seen issues with, like when you're trying to fill a 40-yard uh, debris box with organics, sometimes there's leaking issues or it gets so heavy you can't get it on the truck. Oh, 100%. Um, yeah. Scenarios. Of course. I sh- I, I'm wildly oversimplifying. I don't mean to make it sound like it's child's play. There are lots of things to figure out lots of issues to be aware of like leakage and like weight, certainly. Um, but I think we've got ways to overcome those and, you know, you've got to figure out, we're still in the very early stages of figuring out what is the right size bin and what, how should you shrink the garbage container because you provide an organic container and will people separate? And, you know, there are a lot of things to figure out on a very granular level, almost at each household really eventually. But I think in general, I guess I'm encouraged by, by the growth I'm seeing. And, and, and it is, it is truly normative behavior in a lot of places and increasing numbers of places. I, I hear a lot of, you know, we're in a very strange time. We're, we're recording this at a very strange time in, in world history. And there are some people that will take advantage of this and try to reduce uh, recycling uh, collection and recycling behavior. But on another level, we've got a chance to teach people that uh, we need to collect this stuff separately. It's more important than ever. And, and it needs to get out to to the soil and back into the, the carbon cycle. And we, and we will see that. And we don't, none of us knows how long this will last. But going forward, I expect, especially in California, but all around the world, really, um, I expect to see a, a continued increase in collection programs, separation programs, and, and mostly composting programs with a few other technologies thrown in. It's a perfect time to talk about some of these uh, issues that we're facing thanks to this uh, quarantine and how it relates to waste and recycling. I noticed that um, at some Republic Services MRFs, they're not even sorting recycling anymore or hand sorting. So uh, they're just landfilling any recyclables now. Because, I've heard- you know, this virus can persist on, on uh, some materials. So it's to protect yeah. their workers. And, and there may be an argument there, but. I, I think there is. And I think, I, I don't like that. I've heard some whispers of that as well. I think there are issues with, Certainly, you know, obviously we need to protect the collectors, the drivers, the haulers, and I think we should err on the side of caution and all of that. So, you know, in the short term, I don't like it. You don't like it. But if we were, you know, if we landfill some recyclables, that's probably okay. I hope that's in the interest of safety and not just in the interest of opportunism. But, you know, for, you know, hopefully, I think we're all optimistic this will 
come, you know, run its course and we'll come out of this at some point. And at that point, we'll go back to a little bit more normal behavior. I, I, you know, again, I hope people are doing that out of an abundance of caution. And I understand that. I even support that in the short term. And same with organics, you know, maybe you want to be a little bit more cautious with uh, collections. And I think in the composting world, uh, this type of situation is really going to hurt not the big haulers or even the composters, but the very small uh, door-to-door collectors, the guys with the buckets and the five, the 10, 10 speed bikes and the small trailers and the community composters. But, you know, and, and they, and we may see some people have to drop out of that and, but they'll come back. You know, I think that was having a, quite a bit of a resurgence uh, both here and, and around the country. And I think this is a, a pretty significant speed bump and we all have a lot of things we need to worry about that take precedence over maybe sorting out our recyclables or our organics. But I, again, I think I, I'm at the moment thinking of this as a, as a speed bump, a bump in the road, and we'll come back and, and be stronger for it and uh, hopefully resume the direction we've been going in. Well, I agree. And, and may, maybe, uh, as they say, the problem's the solution. And now people are stuck at home and have the time to take a composting at home workshop and figure out how to make a pile. And <laughs> Unfortunately, no one's, I know I've been spending a lot of time in the garden. I, you know, certainly I, I think, I hope there are people looking, watching some YouTube videos of how to, how to maybe taking a compost workshop online. I don't think there are too many in-person ones these days, but there is, and I've talked to a number of my, my clients, uh, my composter clients who are seeing quite a bit of demand. Now it is spring. So you would expect there to be a bump in compost sales, but they feel like there's something else going on. People are, are spending more time in the garden. They're thinking about planting a garden for the first time. They're spending more time in the yard small probably insignificant upside or or silver lining to this otherwise gray cloud but uh but we'll take it no i I think you're right on there because uh i know a lot of people that are all of a sudden doing victory garden type uh work and i just picked up a whole load of compost yesterday from a friend who just over order they they ordered like five yards of compost for their tiny little garden and (laughs) found out that's a lot (laughs) yeah right because they're not a seasoned compost purchaser yeah. yeah, well, and it's been a dry, dry, compost. sweet spring. I mean, we just went, my wife and I just went for a walk, our daily walk, and found, you know, everything just blooming like crazy. It's just, just been the right spring with just the right combination of plenty of, not enough, but enough moisture and, and a lot of warm days. So things are out there blooming. And so again, small, small silver linings out there, perhaps. So well, now that we've touched on the positive, maybe we can dive a little more into the morbid. And uh, I remember... <laughs> The first uh, time I met you was actually a, a training course that I was taking. You were teaching at uh, UC Davis, and it was a uh, certification program for the CRA. I right. believe now it's on um, greeneducation.edu, the right. an online course. So yeah, great opportunity to take a course like that since uh, people are stuck at home. If you want to take a, d- a deep dive into the uh, zero waste world, that's a great place to do it. And I'll post a link to that too. And shameless plug, I'm also a teacher and have a four-hour elective there on events. One thing I remember from that uh, presentation back in, man, it must have been 2008, so the last uh, recession there, uh, <laughs> you were talking about the uh, pathogen, pathogen reduction potential of composting, uh, in particular sure. for uh, outbreaks among uh, cattle. I right. Think, like, it was, if you had some sort of outbreak you know the the traditional method is to what send them to rendering plants you know unfortunately the traditional method is sometimes just to leave them at the edge of the field and let the coyotes deal with them it depends on the scale of the site of course sometimes rendering um very hard for 
they really don't want farmers moving dead animals, not surprisingly. So a lot of times they're they're just buried on the farm or left for scavengers. Um, I believe at that time we were there was a years ago now there was an emergency animal disposal workshop because we'd had a, a very large numbers of cows die in a, a sort of a peak heat event in the valley and something like fourteen thousand cows died in a weekend or something, but. But yeah, the good news is with composting, it's got a long history. It was developed by the Public Health Service, which is the predecessor agency of the USDA, and it was really focused on destroying pathogens. It's a heat, you know, time and temperature-based process, and it has a lot of track record killing pathogens, and we have a lot of lessons, a lot of research backing that up. So I don't expect that many of the things we might think of as maybe somewhat suspect will not survive the composting process. I'm, I'm much more concerned, again, about the drivers and the handlers, people working at facilities, but the process itself, once you get, for example, a virus-tainted uh, uh, napkin or tissue or something into a properly operated composting site, the times and the temperatures that are involved will absolutely, you know, we don't have any research on this particular novel coronavirus because it's novel and new. We haven't done the research, but there's a lot of history of similar types of organisms, and they just don't survive um, those those conditions. So I would expect that would be the case for this one as well. So no one's going to get COVID-19 infection from uh, putting compost on their garden. Probably should that right? preface that, that I'm not a doctor, I'm not a scientist, but yeah, I would be very, very, very not worried about that. All right. Well, that's good news. And I guess a lot of people are getting food deliveries as well, and they are uh, hopefully in compostable products, but I know a lot of these compostable products have PLA liner, like a biocompostable plastic liner in there. And so that's another one of those things that, at least in my community, isn't accepted in compost facilities. Yeah, it's a a real challenge, and we've mentioned some of those challenges, um, and Again, it's it's fascinating chemistry, and again, you and I have talked about this a lot with that work we did up in, in Portland so many years ago, but you know, we're trying to figure out a way to have those materials break down in a composting system, and again, in some cases, they will, in some cases, they won't. There's a lot of different ways to compost, a lot of mostly retention time, but moisture content, temperatures reached, and, and retention time all play a role, and, and whether or not the composter wants to accept that and, you know, is, is their choice. Um, you know, it's one thing if you're providing a municipal service, it's another if it's just doing a business. So whether or not you want to, you know, at the end of the day, we don't have enough facilities in California. We have even less that will accept food waste and a much smaller subset that will accept compostable plastics. So, we're, you know, overcoming that infrastructure and the other challenges that come along with compostable is a big part of us being able to meet in a way that's convenient for people and doesn't take massive amounts of behavior change, but allows them to enjoy the, the comforts and conveniences they've gotten used to and, and still not, or have maybe have less of an impact on resources. Um, but it's an uphill slog. It's been a, a while. Um, I've been talking about and learning about and studying compostable plastics since the, the late 90s. And most of the challenges that were available that we identified then are, are still with us. <laughs> so right. it's a slow I'm, process. I'm on a compostable products task force here. And um, we've been, you know, trying to see what options there are in terms of getting a consistent messaging across the county for what's acceptable and not only for sale and use around here from restaurants, but uh, at the compost facility. And 
you know, we're in the process of trying to site a new facility here. And uh, there, there's definitely some pushback from the composters that are setting up shop here that don't want the stuff. And the two main arguments that I've seen are one, if you accept compostable plastics, you get a whole bunch of other non-compostable plastics in there. And it's just, you know, you get this super contaminated input feedstock. And the other complaint I hear is that uh, if they accept compostable products officially, they um, are not OMRI listed. So they, uh, they're not certified for as an ingredient in an organic uh, product. So to get a, to sell your compost as organic compost, you cannot accept those types of materials. Right. It's seen as a, a synthetic. And unfortunately that would sort of disqualify you from selling that compost into an organic farm, which may or may not be a big market for your compost. Up, up in Sonoma, for example, that probably is a significant part of the market, uh, maybe less so in Bakersfield. But even the, there, are, there are lots of growers out there that are looking for some type of certainty, some sort of uh, quali- quality assurance with compost. And they look to that OMRI certification that, that's suitable for organic, even if they're not necessarily growing organic, if they're not certified, they like that certification, that imprimatur of organic. And so not, you know, by accepting compostables and, and composting them and losing that, that's, that's a significant hit to some uh, facilities, not all of them, but some of them, that's, that's one reason. So that's an issue. And I know uh, BPI is working on that. They've been working on it for a while, changing the rules or clarifying the rules at the National Organic Standards Board, that group that provides advice and counsel to the National Organic Program is a very long and slow national process. They only meet quarterly, so it takes a long time. So they're working on that, but it's it's a barrier. Um, and of course, the first one you mentioned, the the other, you know, if, if, a, if a cup is okay and the lid's okay, then every lid's okay. And that's, that's, a, that's a trickier one um, because we have a, a whole world of stuff out there and then some small percentages compostable and designed to be composted and uh, it can be very hard to educate people as to how that works. I, I appreciate that the brands want to provide a solution, but um, boy, there's a kind of a long way to go on some of that. And, and that's, you know, we have progress, then we have setbacks, and it goes back and forth. Um, some so. of the progress that I've seen is, for one, clamping down on false claims. And sure. I've seen uh, yep. you know, green stripes on uh, peat or just regular peat plastic cups made yep. by uh, Solo, you know, just trying to confuse people further so that maybe the compostable products don't catch on. So it's almost like an underhanded uh, effort to undermine the competition there, which, you know, from a business standpoint, is not surprising. But uh, <laughs> exactly, we've also seen the state come down and, and try to enforce some of these requirements. Like you can't sell anything labeled biodegradable here anymore. Yeah, that is. I think that's really the bigger success story that that uh, Californians Against Waste and others and the uh, district attorney uh, have been somewhat successful at, at clamping down some of those things. Of course, in the internet world, you can't police everything, but yeah, you don't see a lot of products out there labeled biodegradable that was made uh, a non-usable term a few years ago, and, and they've had some success penalizing some of those companies. I still see vague advertising like made from plants. And things which right. sounds Same. good, but may or may not be really compostable. So you really want to look for compostable. You want to look for certified compostable. Um, you absolutely want to figure out where that material is going to go and make sure that the end user, whether it's a composter or maybe a community composter or gardener, really understands what they're getting. 
and whether they can take it or not and whether they're willing to put up with it. You know, the, the biggest composters in Oregon got together and decided they don't want to deal with it anymore. They're not going to accept compostables. I haven't really checked in to see how that's working, but they were just getting too much contamination. It just wasn't worth it. I heard that. You know, it's a cost benefit uh, issue. You know, yes, it brings some more food. At least that was always the intention. Um, but whether or not uh, it really did, it certainly brought a lot of contamination, at least in the first uh, you know decade or so of that use. So I, I don't expect compostables to go away, but we do have a, a pretty steep uh, an ongoing learning curve, I guess, is a better way to to describe it, and and to figure out what 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 the killer apps are. You know, maybe having it, it has a better application, some closed looped systems and systems where you can have a lot more control over where it's going. I think some of the upsets are when you get a national brand that gets interested. You know, Starbucks has this big national challenge to to make a more recyclable or compostable cup, and that's great. Except, you know, we don't have enough composting capacity in California, let alone across the country. Where are you going to find a place to bring your cup in Fargo or Boise or I don't want to pick on any particular city, but uh, across the, the country, really the coast, it's better, but still a long way to go. Well, let's talk about that capacity issue because there are all these laws now that require organics diversion in California, but uh, there's still a, a service gap and the ability to properly manage those resources. I know down in Los Angeles, uh, there's not a lot of room for composting facilities. You would have to either truck or train it out of the valley even. And so that becomes expensive. So whenever we work down south, we have to use different signage that says food waste only instead of compost. And, you know, that sign, those signage or those, that, those pieces of signage don't have the compostable products or food service wear on there. And we have to sort all that out. Uh, we try to get people to do it themselves. And you know, get some success, but a lot of that stuff still ends up in there and we, we need a manual. Yeah, I guess, I guess the good news is that we are going to see it. It may take some time and certainly this, uh, COVID issue is going to add maybe a year or more to that, uh, challenge of implementing SB 1383, but you, it does envision a little bit more consistency across the state. Obviously, um, as you've seen in your work and I've seen in mine that arguably the North is, is a little bit ahead of the South, but you know, programs are being implemented and facilities are being developed. CalRecycle just let another six facilities uh, grant, so another $15 million or so out there in the universe to develop more facilities. And, and yeah, it will be, you know, you're not going to build a significant regional facility in, in, uh, in Los Angeles. So, yeah, you're going to have to haul it out. I'm, I'm okay with that to the extent that that's, you know, most of our food doesn't come from the county either. Most of our food comes from the valley. <laughs> so. Right. You know, some logistical challenges there, but most, and the studies I've done over the years for Cow Recycle, most of the, the compost really is going to end up on crops in agriculture, on things like almonds and grapes and vegetables and tomatoes. And so, you know, we just have to work out those logistics. And, and we've had some, some really good success and some players who've invested and, and figured that out and decided that that's what the state wants and that's what their city wants. And there's some others who've been a little slower on the uptake, but you do see most of the major players with a really clear signal from Sacramento that this is what's happening and it's not going to change. You know, our current governor, who I think has been doing a great job during this current crisis, uh, was the mayor of San Francisco when they signed the, uh, the mandatory composting law in San Francisco. So he probably understands these issues as well as anyone who's sat in that seat. He's got his hands full now, but, but again, he, I don't foresee any, any kind of major policy changes in 1383. So you'll, you'll see some of the cities catching up or expanding services. So that should be a little bit easier or the logistics hopefully will get a little bit better. 
But yeah, so it's I actually tough. did a, a little mental math here and even put the pen to paper and did some calculations for Los Angeles. So uh, bear with me. I'm going to explain this out. They have a countywide organic waste management plan from March 2018. And they said they have not enough organic waste recycling capacity, only about 30,500 tons per year available to process 1.6 million tons per year of food waste. 98 tons a day out of 500 or 5,000 uh, tons per day. So that, that's a big gap, but they do have plans to, you know, take on maybe 2,500 tons per day of that in the long term. But, you know, over the next 15 years, there's really no plan for 2,600 tons per day of food waste. Uh, so I was thinking, well, you know, SpaceX is based in LA and have this new methane fired uh, Starship rocket, right? So I was wondering how much uh, or how many days worth of LA's food waste uh, <laughs> going to methane gasification would it take to launch a, uh, a Starship with a super heavy booster um, with its max prop propellant capacity, right? So, you know, put in all the, uh, the numbers, use the worm calculator, use some uh, numbers from some methane uh, production facilities and their, you know, estimates of how much... Uh, methane they can make with that kind of feedstock. And that is, it gave me 65 launches per year, one every 5.6 days. <laughs> wow. Cool. Well, let's, let's hope space travel continues to increase. I, I don't know. I, I guess at the, I love that you did that. I love that you're thinking about that. And I love that Lon is sending things to the, to Mars or wherever, but at the end of the day, you know, as, as interesting as anaerobic digestion is, and yes, there's some uh, methane gas potential there. Um, you know, we've got to crawl before we can walk and walk before we can run. Most of those cities, most of the cities in, in Southern California are not that used to even sending their yard debris for composting. Quite a bit of that's gone for ADC and other things. So we got to get that into composting. And arguably, I think I've been yelling for the last decade or so that that ADC policy really sort of suppressed the ability of, of composting sites to attract feedstock, to get revenue in order to invest in new facilities. So Totally. Um, Let me as, just interrupt and say, uh, yeah, for those ahead. listeners that don't know what ADC is, that is um, alternative daily cover. And it's uh, typically mulch and uh, you know low-grade mulch, maybe with nails and stuff in it even, or uh, auto shredder fluff. All kinds of stuff can be used as ADC. But for the longest time, you're, it was considered recycling if you put this stuff on landfills to uh, to cap the cell each evening or even to put on the roads and, and whatnot. So they're getting recycling credit for landfilling the material. Or they were, because now uh, after AB 1594, they can no longer get credit for it. So we're seeing some transition. Um, as you know, Orange County, one of the bigger users of ADC in the state, has now made a very strong pivot um, through the leadership of Tom Petrulis and others at Orange County towards composting. They've got composting pilots at most of their landfills now and plans to expand those. So we're seeing less ADC and more feedstock on the market, which means more opportunity, so more potential for facility development. So I, I again, long-term, very optimistic about uh, new facilities being cited. We're getting, we were talking about capacity and uh, at, you know, I just did a report for Cal Recycle. I can send you a link to that, looking at capacity. And if you include Kern County in Southern California, which maybe it is, maybe it isn't, although historically we've been sending food waste from Los Angeles up to Kern County for composting since the 90s. So it's not that unusual for trucks to be loaded with organic waste, 
make it over the grapevine up to Bakersfield and then be composted and added to the soils up there. So I expect that to continue. There actually is no, there isn't any latent capacity in Los Angeles County, but if you just go one or two counties over, certainly up in the valley, there's quite a bit of capacity. There are large facilities up there looking for for feedstock. And if they're, you know, they're, at the moment, we don't have trucks with food waste wandering around the state wondering where to go. We have a lot of facilities wondering where the food waste is. So we've got to get people to implement more programs, collect more material, get that to where the sites are. So it's a chicken and egg thing. You've got to collect it before you can process it. And these days, you can't develop a facility without having some sense of um, where your feedstock is coming right. from, and even a guarantee of feedstock. Right. And that's what's uh, going on here, and it's super contentious. But uh, as you were saying, uh, maybe there's some silver lining with all of this. I, I, it really pains me that oil's down to $20 a barrel. It's just insane. But it might make uh, trucking compost over the hill economically feasible again. That is such a fascinating, the fact that that happened, you know, simultaneous with this uh, virus thing is, is actually very, very unfortunate and, and not, you know, obviously the price were, have been set. They were artificially lowered that, you know, we'll see how long they can hold out and what impact that has. Is that a long-term impact, a short-term impact? I don't, I don't know. Yeah, it might make trucking better in the short term. Um, I haven't noticed gas prices going down here uh, in California yet, but uh, I heard my brother was buying gas in Colorado for buck sixty-nine the other day, which is pretty crazy. But I don't think that's a long-term solution. That's a, that was a short-term play. We'll see how long they can keep it up. Um, the well, rail makes the most sense uh, for you know heavy stuff like that. Potentially, I, I you know it depends on how far it's going. Yeah. It, and I think people look to rail sometimes, and it looks really cool. It sounds really fun, and we've got tracks and stuff. But boy, you, you got to get it into a rail car, and then you got to get it off the train and out of the rail car. That's the part people forget, and that that works if you have a lot of volume, like we have with coal, or some really higher value things. I, I don't really foresee a lot of organics going that way, but eh, you never know. Um, well, maybe the Cybertruck then will be the, the ticket. There you go. There you go. <laughs> or the rocket, never, the rocket to Mars. I love that idea. <laughs> yeah, we, <laughs> I mean, I'm not trying to advocate for more um, digestion over composting. I think it, you're just advocating for more rockets. I get it. <laughs> it was just a mental exercise really. Um, but it, it turns out, you know, if you can have carbon negative rocket fuel, because that methane, instead of going to the landfill and producing yeah. landfill, you're burning it in a rocket with the perfect stoichiometric ratio. And yeah, there's carbon uh, emissions coming out of the back, but it's CO2, which doesn't have the global warming potential that methane does unburned. So it was a carbon negative fuel and it, I could dive back into this. Uh, you know, if, if, those. if that's what it takes to get more people to separate food waste, if that's a story that they like, or, you know, that in, encourages them to, pass those rate increases and, and, you know, do the outreach that is required to their residents. And great. I love it. I love it. I mean, I'd be curious, you know, right now uh, with food waste collection, getting back to, you know, the virus at the moment, you know, these door to door food waste collectors are probably finding out that, you know, maybe their bread and butter was going to restaurants and that probably isn't not a lot of restaurants generating a whole lot of food waste at the moment. I haven't actually seen any numbers on that, but that's certainly an impact I hadn't really thought through. Um, but hopefully that's a short a couple of restaurants yeah. and um, they're still doing deliveries. So um, we're still there in the docks and checking on their compost, but we've reduced service, um, you know, yeah. to less than half of the usual because everything's going to yeah. take out. I don't know if residential right. compost has increased accordingly. 
Uh, yeah, it'll be, it'll, it will, you know, ho- again, so many more higher priority things to worry about, but I suppose in a year or so we'll have some data to, to see what actually happened as far as uh, how solid waste flows changed and, and evolved. And, uh, I mean, I think it would be a great opportunity to study, although every waste characterization study planned has been put on hold because you wouldn't get representative samples now. But I'm thinking like, well, uh, what about representative samples of what happens when you're in this kind of situation? Because it's unprecedented and it could be valuable. Well, and again, how many, how much, how how much interest do you have in exposing your workers to to trash in this type of situation? I don't, I don't know if I'm <laughs> a fan. You could probably figure it out, but uh, be tough. I I've seen my entire calendar for March and April be cleared off of conferences and trainings and classes, and and you know I. While it's frustrating, I, I'm I'm kind of okay with it. Be relieved at this point. So well, uh, I mean, we do a lot of events, and our calendar is clear till September now. So it's ouch. been damaging, but it inspired me to start this podcast because my calendar's wide open, and I have to stay home. So it's a way to stay engaged, and we're going to be missing all these conferences and and special events. Yeah. So we can at least have some of these conversations and. And yeah, well, let's hope it doesn't last out that long. I, I just saw a note from the Canadian Composting Council that Canada is doing a subsidy, uh, an employment subsidy, so they'll pay a certain percentage of your employees' wages for a certain time. They, they, they pegged it somewhere in June, so they think it's going to be done by June. So if we trust the Canadians, maybe we'll be coming out of it by then. I don't know. Well, they but, probably had a better response than we did. Uh, <laughs> we're kind of, we they were are much more compliant. Yeah, yeah, they are much more compliant. So. That's harsh, and I, I feel for you. It's it's hard, and uh, I hope uh, folks are hanging in there. A lot of folks had their everyday life and their futures very much interrupted, and that's 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 hard. Um, I appreciate that. But hopefully, it won't yeah, be too. We're long. definitely going to have some podcasts talking about the impact on on events in the event industry. But just to take advantage of your expertise, let's keep the topic to um, composting <laughs> stuff. Back to composting. Back to composting because I'm already getting depressed. At least, um, you know, like I said, there's there's potentially more composting going on in, in terms of uh, people purchasing compost for their gardens if they're planning. Um, yeah, let's let's talk. We haven't talked about carbon sequestration or this whole carbon farming. This idea of of really taking all this organic waste and and putting it on rangelands and working lands, and that is a real bright spot. You know. Uh, our friend John Wick and and Jeff Creek and some other folks uh, looked at that and they got some help from UC Davis and UC Berkeley and really figured out that if you put a relatively small amount of compost on these working lands, these range lands, not not traditional agriculture, but place where cattle is being grazed or running, maybe nothing is happening, um, you really get a, a significant increase in the carbon that's sequestered in the soil. And that, that is an amazing bright spot. CDFA has recognized this and they're they're giving out grants to farmers to and ranchers to put compost down on the soil. There were quite a few, I want to say there were over 75 healthy soil grants given out and something like two thirds of them involve adding compost to the soil. So there's really a lot, a lot going on that's very optimistic. It's very good for climate change and very good for composters. We'll, we'll see how the economics shake out because generally, you know, getting it all the way out to those fields that aren't normally tilled the way you know uh, uh, most agricultural fields are and maybe spreading it there's a lot of cost involved in it but perhaps you know cities are required as you know to procure a certain amount of compost about uh, 0.8 tons per person it's based on a per capita unit under 1383 and so perhaps there's a way that they can satisfy that 
requirement by causing some of the compost that their their haulers are collecting to be spread on fields. This is happening right now in Alameda County. Just a few weeks ago, they spread a bunch of compost on some land they own up in the Altamont Hills, and they had it uh, overseen by the Resource Conservation Districts and some other folks. So that's a really exciting thing. That's a very optimistic uh, development in the field of compost. I mean, the, the good news is we have amazing markets for compost. We don't rely on China. We rely on the, the great force that is California agriculture, and, and that uses up most of our compost. Um, but to be able to spread it on on working lands is is really a, a fascinating development. Um, very yeah, I'm that. I'm really excited about this, and you bringing it up. So thank you. Um, one of my former staff actually did a uh, uh, master's thesis on it, and oh nice, the results are incredible. You can put out like less than a quarter inch of compost, spreading it out on a field. And, uh, and they have these trucks that can do it. It's like a blower, you know, where they just like blowing yep. your compost, yep. you know, just give it, give it a dusting. And, um, what happens is the grass is fertilized by this organic fertilizer. So it grows substantially more. And yep. as it's doing that, it is, you know, John described, John Wick, he described it as a, uh, like a straw that sucks carbon out of the atmosphere and puts it into its uh, roots and, and plant matter there. And then when right. as the plant does better, the roots go deeper and it brings that labile carbon down at the deeper levels of the soil. And it, at least so far, all the research is showing, and there was just a really great study done at UC Davis, separate from the John Wick work that pretty much confirmed the same thing. They were finding more carbon in the, in the deeper, I'm going to miss the name of the the, the fancy name for the soil level they're talking about, but the much deeper levels of soil underneath these plots up in up at Russell Ranch at uh, UC Davis. So really cool stuff going right. on. So yeah, the amount of compost. Long-term is, storage, uh, carbon storage. Right, right, yeah. And it doesn't take that much compost. Like you said, it's a, you know, a quarter inch per acre. Maybe sounds like a lot, but it barely changes the color of the soil. It's a really tiny amount. And, uh, and it can use up a lot of compost. So those of us, you know, there are... Plenty of folks in Southern California worried about a compost glut, which is something I've been hearing my entire career, and it's never never materialized. We have way, way, way more places to put compost in California than we have compost, so we need to make more of it, and then we can spread more of it, whether that's on an almond orchard or a rancher's field for carbon sequestration, but just more and more places to uh, to make the soil better and make the soil more healthy and sequester the carbon and probably retain a little bit more water. There's just multiple benefits that we're just... We're just really starting to document in a big way. So the news right. is so really good. The organic in matter in the soil, and that increases the water retention capacity, which further helps the grass stay greener longer in the season. Uh, you know, in California, we have this, it's beautiful out now, the green hills, like you mentioned earlier. But, you know, come midsummer, it, it's all dried up. And so these cows are, you know, needing to rely on alfalfa and other like feed. I, I mean, I've been to some businesses like a candy factory and all their waste food was going to cow feed. You're feeding cows caramel and, you know, nougat, <laughs> chocolate. Yeah. Like, this is so bizarre. But, you know, they need feed. And, and when, when everything dries up, then that's, that's what you get is uh, some waste food or you have to grow food at, at a huge water cost. I mean, the, the water cost of growing alfalfa in the Central Valley for uh, mostly for export to China, unfortunately. But right. there's a lot that goes to feeding animals, the water footprint of, of cattle is particularly high because of that. But if you yep. apply compost to the rangelands, not only do you get more uh, grazing potential, uh, you get a longer grazing potential so farmers can save a lot of money in buying feed. 100%. Yep. 
Yeah, very and encouraging. And, and again, CDFA adding, uh, you know, more uh, options for composting manure. We're trying to re- reduce some of the regulatory burden for them. So we'll hopefully see a lot more dairy manure composted and getting, again, onto ag land, onto rangeland. So um, very encouraged on the back end of composting. Um, there are challenges. We've talked about some of them as far as the, the collection, the manufacturing. But as far as the end use, I think we're, we're, we're doing about as well as we could here in California. <laughs> doing very well. Yeah, I mean, the, another thing that we haven't uh, touched on is um, a huge market for organic compost or uh, cannabis growers in California. I was one hundred percent, one hundred percent. Yeah, I was meeting with a, a facility operator, and he said he got a call, and someone tried to order. It was it was like a year and a half worth of their capacity in one order. Wow, and wow! Because they were just going big with with uh, their farming or cannabis farming. But have you have you seen a, a correlation there with um, like an increase in demand since uh, legalization happened in the state? Uh, well, I think there was always a demand. I think we talk about it more now that it's been legalized. I think some of the, the compost manufacturers were a little sheepish to, to talk about what a significant market it was, particularly in some counties, um, particularly those up your way, uh, Napa, <laughs> Sonoma, Mendocino. But, you know, I only recently moved out of Nevada County. It was a big deal up there. Um, yeah, they growers use a lot of compost, um, outdoor growers, Certainly use a lot of compost. Uh, the indoor guys don't because they're not using soil at all. But yeah, we'll see. I think um, they've been a market. Um, we'll see how long that lasts. But they're just adding on to an already robust agricultural market for compost. So, you know, welcome to the club. <laughs> you know, almonds and wine grapes and lots of other crops are, have already been there. And I'm not surprised cannabis uh, has joined in on that. Right, but it's mostly these high-end specialty crops that are getting the fancy compost treatment, right? You're not getting uh Well, sure. There's 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 a it's cash crops, it's crops that can afford, you know, soil amendment is a luxury product. It's it's a it's a voluntary it's a it's it's a discretionary expense, I guess. And so that's the kind of thing, you know, with the economy possibly taking a little bit of a dive here with what's going on, that may be something that suffers, although so far that we haven't seen that. Yeah, certain crops are just not going to support an annual uh, addition of compost. Others do in good years and not so much in other years. But but it's also a, a chicken and egg thing. It's an availability thing. Um, if there's more compost available, there's a great study came out of uh, UC Davis a few years ago. A few professors there surveyed as best they could the entire almond industry. And the biggest impediment to almond growers who weren't using compost, using more compost, was availability. So to me, that says if they could get it, they would use it. And you have to understand, yeah, almonds are a cash crop and they use a lot of water, but they're grown from Bakersfield up to the border. So they're a massive, massive crop. And they seem to have discovered some real predominantly water holding capacity, but also soil quality yeah. building it issues. It gets so, so dusty in those areas because the land is just so dry and they're not, uh, there's no organic matter being returned yeah. to, the, to the ground there. So. But it's, it's hard to find a crop anywhere in California that somebody isn't using some compost on. It's a lot of marginal land. People use it for a lot of different reasons. I don't think we have our hands completely around that. Um, We've only recently, believe it or not, we've only really recently begun really studying some of this stuff on a crop specific level through UC Riverside or UC Davis or, or others. We just don't give it as much attention. You know, we're not the fertilizer industry. Uh, We don't have big grants to give uh, to UC Davis or UC Riverside to study things. So there, there's a little bit of work. It's more work being done now than at any time that I've been in California. So that's very encouraging. But uh, we've got a lot to do, a lot to learn and understand all of the mechanisms of 
why you apply compost and what benefits you can expect and what are the best rates and you know what are the feedstocks and, and what are the qualities you look for. It's just a lot we don't know, but we're, we're learning and we're figuring it out. We're catching up with industry. Industry's already figured out some of this stuff, but it's an exciting time. Yeah, I mean, I was really happy to hear you mention that UC Davis was uh, finally studying compost. It's I'm an alumni there, and it was a uh, nice. Or it, it is an agricultural school uh, with like hundreds of acres of, of farmland. Yeah, I I probably am a little too hard on on Davis. I you know, in, when I started in this business um, back in Minnesota, we leaned very heavily on the University of Minnesota. They had an arboretum. They understood compost. They were an incredible resource for a small composting company uh, as far as getting testing done, understanding what it meant. And then moving to California, I was surprised that there was almost a disconnect between the composters and and the universities. And although that, with all due respect, there's, there's some really good researchers at both Riverside and Berkeley and Davis, um, not what I expected from the state that has the most ambitious plans to move organics from landfills onto the farm. We should be doing a lot more work. and. Fortunately, I mean, sadly, you know, we just uh, canceled uh, the BioCycle Conference, which is going to be up in Sacramento. And there was a whole day of UC Davis, predominantly UC Davis researchers and, and related folks talking about all the projects they were doing, um, something I helped put together with Nora. And unfortunately, that isn't going to happen now because of, of where we're at with the virus. But, um, but there is a lot of work going on. It will get out. Um, it is being published both... Um, Really, interestingly, a lot of the, the work that John Wick was doing and, and the professors Wendy Silver and Rebecca Riles and a lot of their grad students who've now gone on to uh, teacherships or what do you call that when they become? Anyway, they've moved on to different universities, UC Merced and, and Humboldt State and other places, and they're still continuing this compost work, which is, which is so important. So um, I, I look forward to a lot of better uh, papers coming out of all these uh, places and, and providing the support the resources that composters need to to grow markets and understand challenges and and maybe even solve some of these problems. You know, um, we replace uh, certain fumigants in strawberries, for examples, and maybe compost can help with that or as an alternative to that. There's a whole lot of solutions compost can provide, given that we're going to be making millions and millions of, of yards of this stuff. I'm just a little bitter because I was at UC Davis and uh, it was the students that were leading the composting at the student farm. It was the only composting going on. It was yep. uh, Project Compost, a student-run yep. effort. And uh, they got pre-consumer food waste from the, the dining commons. But when I was the zero waste program coordinator at UC Davis, we were able to convert all food waste from all of the eateries to go to a composting facility in the area off campus. But we, we um, also made every event on campus uh, zero waste using the compostable products. They would get delivered and bins would get delivered in advance of each event and picked up afterwards. And we made this uh, tremendous progress there. And then I got uh, called into a meeting where um, an administrator told us, well, hey, you know, thanks for getting this stream all separated. We're going to take it and put it into this biodigester that we got this grant for. And then we're going to yep. let it the digestate. And I was just smacking my head. I was like, this is an ag school. I mean, I understand the potential of biodigestion and being useful and needing to study it. But man, that was a lot of work. And, and I was happy that it was going to compost. It's unfortunate that they did seem to look at it from an either or standpoint. And, and that is, you know, it, is, it was a, a great story that the digester that they built was conceived and built by one of the professors and some of her students there. It's a great story, but it's, it's part of the solution. It's not the only solution. Unfortunately, the story is very similar 
at Cal Poly uh, San Luis Obispo, they had a pretty good program. They were it was all student run, and then they needed that space for something else, and they ended the program. Now they're I just read that they're that they're looking at bringing that back. So I, I think you'll see that come back. It's it's I guess it's it's frankly disappointing you don't see a really good campus based composting system in California. If you want to see that, you have to go up to Washington or into the Midwest. It's it's somewhat surprise it's surprising you really we really should have a very good at least one but probably a handful of really good campus composting programs whether they're volunteer and student-led or part of the campus i mean cal poly has done well yeah or at least certainly a concentration i mean there's a lot of things you could be doing and you know cal poly manages a lot of their animal manure that way um davis does not um other schools don't um so there's little bits and pieces but we've never really really pulled the trigger in a way that we should. And I don't know whether that's a, a UC versus a CSU type of situation. I don't know, but maybe it's the junior colleges, whatever, whoever, somebody should be running a facility somewhere so we can test. It's just so, it's just, it would be a great resource for the producers and the cities in California. So I, I hope that will develop in the next decade right, or like so. UCLA has a uh, recycling MRF or uh, material recovery facility design major. So right. they, they offer a major in designing a, a recycling center. Why couldn't, uh, you know, an ag school like Davis provide a, a compost facility design? hundred percent, hundred percent, especially given, again, the commitment the state has made, the direction the state's going. We've got all sorts of composting experiments going on all around the state. You'd think we would want our best students, our best faculty, at least spending some of their time. And to be fair, there are, there are more now than there have ever been, but, um, I guess it can't ever happen fast enough for me. So, so the first uh, permitted composting facility in California was uh, at a vineyard, right? I know that's a big uh, concentration there. Is there viticulture and enology? But um, yeah, again, hundred percent. A lot of vineyards compost. A lot of dairies compost. There's just a lot more going on. And for some reason, and I've heard different stories. I don't really know what the what the real I, I suppose at the end of the day, it's about money and the, the composting industry as such as it is, just doesn't have money to support professors and research. And that's largely the way it's done these days, but boy, there's just a lot of compost going on out there. And some professors, some institutions look at that and say, Oh, well, there aren't any other questions in composting. We know all the answers in composting. We know how to do it. So what, what, why would we waste time with this? And I think that's just short sighted. I think there's a lot of work we could be doing, a lot of research we could be doing. You could get the students involved. You could learn some of the lessons that, that business is having to learn and cities are going to having to learn. Um, maybe save us all a lot of time and trouble, but we're, we're not there yet. But Well, I would nominate you to be like a um, department chair if they did start. Yeah, totally. Like that. All, all I want, a little adjunct professorship. I could hang out in Davis, do that. I'd love to teach composting in, in my dotage, you know, as I, if I ever retire, maybe I could do that. Um, yeah, that'd be a good move. I mean, let because, me. I mean, it's fair. called black gold. It's like a valuable commodity, and, and uh, <laughs> you know, like people want to buy it. It sells for what forty dollars a ton. At, yeah, some, some, even more in some cases. Um, you know, it's it's ironic. I was supposed to be up uh, at Santa Rosa Junior College next week uh, with our friend Will Box and Carrie Oceans and others teaching this week long composting course. They've got a great little pilot up there at uh, Santa Rosa Junior College, and it, oh yeah, so we do have. Yeah, Shone Farm. It's fantastic. Unfortunately, we were going to spend a week up there teaching, and we we literally waited until almost the week before to uh, to finally cancel it. We just didn't feel comfortable, and turn turns out we were probably pretty 
justified in doing that. But hopefully we'll get that back on track and, and offer that course again. We offer these week-long courses all around the country and usually at least one or two in California per year. And uh, so we are there are resources out there. We do have some you know, practical educational courses, but not at the UC Davis level, the UC Berkeley level, the really high quality, really world quality research that we could be doing and should be doing well, and, and hopefully will be doing. Meanwhile, what, um, where can people find information about these trainings? I'll, I'll put a link up on the page. And uh, Yeah, the U.S. Composting Council, just compostingcouncil.org. It's actually the, comp, the training courses are run through the, the Composting Council Research and Education Foundation, which is sort of a mouthful. But if you just search for U.S. Composting Council and training programs, we've got a, a website up there, and it'll uh, show you all the forthcoming uh, locations. I think the next one is in New Jersey, and then we're going to be doing one in Lincoln, Nebraska. We're talking about doing another one down in Orange County later in the in the fall. So hopefully, uh, if this virus thing uh, runs its course, we'll be the next one in California. Will be down in Orange County sometime in the fall. Probably doing Colorado. We got a couple. We're doing them all over the place. I guess what I was going to say is that we started that course uh, in 2010. The first place we offered it was UC Davis. We did one that year, and every year we've added more courses, more courses, and, and they're selling out. The Sonoma course. Not only sold out, but we had a waiting list. And as some people dropped off because their companies wouldn't let them travel, we actually were kept that course full right up right up until we canceled it. <laughs> Unfortunately. But but we're getting, you know, 35, 40 people every time we teach it, which is a small number, but it's uh, it's a week-long course, which is a lot of time and an effort for people to take. But it's a it's a great course. I'm really, really proud of what we built there, and it's a it's a good resource for folks um, to get into the business. Yeah, I mean, with 30% of us uh, unemployed now, maybe there'll be some people wanting to get into a new job and new career path, and maybe composting will be it. You know, 100%. And, and you know, we have seen people. Uh, there were some, some of my favorite stories. We had two gentlemen who were software engineers up in uh, Seattle. They quit their jobs and road tripped down and took the week-long course and started a business, and now they're one of the, the better composters in the country. They're doing great, and uh, I do see that. You know, it is it is an opportunity, and and you know, in some cases, some of these smaller collection programs, these uh, community composters and and collectors, it's a, it's a fairly low low bar low barrier to entry job, and I, I unfortunately I wouldn't be surprised if some of the ones that have been developed lately, you know, struggle in the next few months, but I expect that more will come out of it because yeah, people are going to look for maybe a different job or a more satisfying job or maybe somewhat of a a future they control a little bit more. I don't, I don't know, but um, certainly there are opportunities, especially here in the West coast. All right, Matt. Well, uh, it's been great talking to you and uh, it's always a pleasure. I know we've about hit our, our time here. So I wanted to uh, just thank you again and send people to mattcotton.com and uh, check out our uh, trash talk podcast.com page for links to some of the stuff that we've been talking about. And, uh, Wishing you well and, and staying healthy. Well, Michael, likewise, always a pleasure. I'm always encouraged by your, your enthusiasm and your, your, your incredible imagination. So I, I wish you nothing but luck with the podcast and I'm going to watch it grow. So thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it.